Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and at IASLC.org in the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Liu. Hi, this is Dr. Stephen Liu, Director of Thoracic Oncology at Georgetown University. In today's episode of Lung Cancer Considered, we'll discuss pleuromesothelioma, a cancer whose treatment has undergone pretty dramatic paradigm shifts in the past few years. I am grateful to be joined by two experts, both medical oncologists. Our first guest is Dr. Sanjay Papat, a consultant thoracic medical oncologist at the Royal Marsden and professor of thoracic oncology at the Institute of Cancer Research, both in London, England. Dr. Papat is also the chair of BTOG, the British Thoracic Oncology Group, and is on the board of directors for the Mesothelioma Applied Research Foundation. Sanjay, thank you for joining us today. Pleasure, Stephen. Hi. We're also joined by Dr. Melina Marmorellis from the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. She's an assistant professor of medicine at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania and the medical director of the Penn Mesothelioma and Plural Program. Melina, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Now, mesothelioma is a relatively rare cancer, and in the U.S., it's often treated at tertiary centers. I find that a lot of trainees in the U.S., may not have a lot of exposure to mesothelioma. So, Melina, can we just start by describing the typical presentation of this disease? Well, Stephen, like any cancer, it has several types of presentations. One type is certainly that it can just be incidentally found while a patient is undergoing testing for something else, you know, screening CT scans, uh, preoperative scans, but the patient really doesn't have any symptoms. On the other end of the spectrum, we certainly see people that have unexplained weight loss, new cough, new pleural effusions that they can't explain, chest pain, or certainly difficulty breathing. And sometimes, you know, the rapid onset of symptoms or the fact that a patient's asymptomatic can give us clues about how aggressive the disease is behaving. One of the things I often see in in cases is sort of a delay in diagnosis. I think that you know, fine needle aspirates, sampling of effusions, often non-diagnostic. And so I think you have to have a pretty high degree of suspicion. Do you still run into that? Definitely. I think one thing that I've learned a lot in seeing patients with mesothelioma is that you really have to be aggressive sometimes about getting the surgical biopsy in order to make the correct diagnosis. Even with a small FNA or a core, sometimes you're not able to see the full histology And as we'll talk about later, I'm sure histology has become really important in treatment decisions for mesothelioma. So it's really important to get a good piece of tissue. Yeah. Now, there's an important link established between mesothelioma and asbestos. The dangers of asbestos, I think, are very well documented. And as a result, a lot of uses are tightly regulated. But some people might be surprised to know that asbestos is not a banned substance in all parts of the world. Is that accurate, Sanjay? Yeah, that's completely true. You know, I mean, mesothelioma is fundamentally due to asbestos exposure. And many parts of the world are still manufacturing asbestos and using it. In fact, as far as I know, the US has not got a fully nationwide ban. There are statewide bans, but it's still legal to import small amounts in the US. In most of Europe, asbestos has been completely banned. In the UK, blue and brown asbestos was banned in 1985. There's still quite a lot of white Christ-style asbestos used thereafter. And in 1999, a ban of white asbestos came in. And so it's been completely banned in the UK since 1999. We still have many countries mining it. Russia, China, Brazil, 
Kazakhstan are the big four asbestos producers globally. And indeed, India and China are the two of the biggest users still of asbestos. Yeah, I think it's really important we keep that in mind um, in terms of a policy standpoint and something that we'll have to hopefully change going forward. Yeah. And, you know, Stephen, one of the issues is there's still a lot of buildings with white asbestos in it because these were used quite a lot. And so the exposures that we're seeing now quite a lot in Europe is, you know, very different to the old blue and brown asbestos that people had previously. I think that we can also do a lot more in terms of awareness of asbestos, especially in other parts of the world. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, uh, folk don't really appreciate that there's still asbestos risks. For example, where do most of the nation, where the world's ships go to be deconstructed? A lot of ship deconstruction happens in India. And, you know, there are real concerns about asbestos regulations being a bit lax and asbestos exposure there, as well as the modern trend for renovating homes, which were, may have been used with, built with asbestos in the 80s, uh, 90s, etc. Yeah, I think it's important that policies going forward really protect vulnerable populations that might not be aware of the things they're being exposed to. No, prevention obviously can be the, an entire topic for an episode, but I want to focus today a bit more on management. And when we talk about managing pleural mesothelioma, one of the first decisions we need to make as a group is regarding surgery. Now, none of the three of us are surgeons, but we all work closely with them in our multidisciplinary teams. Uh, Melina, at Penn, what are the favored types of operations for mesothelioma? So there are two operations that are most popular for mesothelioma, the more aggressive being the extrapleural pneumonectomy or EPP, and the second being pleurectomy and decortication, which is a lung sparing surgery. So in EPP surgery, you take both the pleura and the full lung, and in a pleurectomy and decortication, you strip the pleura and take pieces of the lung that might be involved, but you leave the rest of the lung to allow the patient to have you know, better breathing capacity. At Penn, we favor the pleurectomy and decortication for the majority of patients as a lung sparing surgery. We also have several ongoing clinical trials, including a randomized trial looking at intraoperative PDT or photodynamic therapy. So most patients end up on that clinical trial. In addition, we're piloting some intraoperative imaging with tumor glow with Sunil Singhal that looks at really trying to find the residual disease, because one of the most important things about a mesothelioma surgery is really trying to get the maximum amount of disease out of the thorax. Yeah, I want to talk a little more about surgery here because you know surgery for mesothelioma is a very technically uh, difficult operation and really done at, at specialty centers. So a lot of listeners may not really have exposure in terms of surgery for mesothelioma. So does everyone with resectable mesothelioma undergo surgery at Penn? So that's a great question. And I think the role of surgery is really controversial and a little bit murky. So the answer to that is that surgery is considered in patients that have potentially a resectable disease and epithelioid histology. There were studies showing that patients with sarcomatoid histology perhaps had disease that was too aggressive, that they couldn't wait the long recovery period that's needed for surgery in order to start a systemic therapy. So they are not considered surgical candidates. Now in the middle with patients that have biphasic histology, we do consider them as surgical candidates sometimes, but again, it's mostly in the epithelioid population. And then the type of surgery is important. So, you know, we mentioned the more extensive surgery, the EPP has a pretty high mortality rate, as high as 11% for 
a surgery compared to pleurectomy decortication, which is somewhere around three to 4%. There have been trials looking at whether surgery is beneficial from a survival standpoint. The MARS trial was a prospective randomized study comparing EPP to chemotherapy, and they didn't find a survival benefit for surgery. But a lot of people feel that that was because of the more aggressive surgery that was done, the EPP form. We've also looked retrospectively. ISLAC actually looked at a retrospective trial showing that the median overall survival after surgery is 40 months, which is actually you know fairly good. But I think one question that I have been asking myself is, you know, in the age of immunotherapy now, where some people are receiving durable benefits, is going through a big surgery really improving their survival? I love that we're we're asking these questions that we're constantly reevaluating and reassessing our standards that we're not sort of maintaining the status quo because things are changing. And you know, if we look at, at other parts of the world, Sanjay in the UK, is the role of surgery for mesothelioma changing? Yeah, it is. You know, it's debated quite a lot, you know. And in the UK, we come from a rich heritage of mesothelioma research. We're able to do a lot of trials. And as Melina uh, mentioned, you know, we were on the original Mars trial, look, you know, looking at the role of EPP. We've recently completed recruitment to the Mars 2 trial where patients are randomized to surgery or no surgery, where surgery is lung sparing surgery, macroscopic complete resection. And, you know, we're looking to see whether this does improve overall survival because I think there's a lot of folk who just worry about the patient selection that contributes to some of the outcomes that we see reported. Now, who benefits, who doesn't? That's still a real open question. We think we know some of the answers to that, as Melina has pointed out. But uh, at the moment, there's still a lot of thought as to who needs surgery, at least in the UK and most of Europe, I would suggest. Now, Sanjay, what about radiation? How do you incorporate radiation therapy in the treatment of mesothelioma? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, I'm proud to say that the UK has got, again, uh, another rich heritage in uh, radiation studies. We have evaluated the role of prophylactic radiotherapy to therapeutic tracks. We had two randomized trials, SMART and PIT, looking at the role of uh, prophylactic radiotherapy. And both essentially showed the same thing, that there was no major role with prophylactic radiation. And that's been incorporated into the latest ESMO guidelines, suggesting that uh, prophylactic radiation is not justified in at least routine practice in patients receiving systemic therapy. We tend to use it mostly in the palliative setting, and we have opened a great trial, the SYSTEMS-2 trial, which is evaluating the standard 20-grain 5-fraction regime that we usually give versus the uh, most more dose-intense uh, 36 in 6 We tend not to use the sort of perioperative high-dose radiation that you guys in the US use. We're looking for more data before that becomes routinely implemented. And there's an interesting trial being planned with uh, proton therapy for MISO at the moment. Let's shift over to US practice. Melina, any differences in, in radiation practice at Penn? Our practices are fairly similar, actually. We do not routinely do perioperative radiation, and we mostly use radiation in the palliative setting to help with uh, problematic areas or pain. We do sometimes consider more extensive hemithoracic radiation later in later lines of therapy, especially when using proton therapy. Now, the big shift with mesothelioma, and really the topic for the past few years, has been the integration of immunotherapy. The results of Checkmate 743 led to the approval in the U.S. of nivolumab plus ipilimumab as first-line therapy for advanced mesothelioma 
Melina, maybe you can remind our listeners what that study showed. Sure. So Checkmate 743 is a randomized trial looking at ipinevo versus platinum pemetrexid in the first-line setting in unresectable pleural mesothelioma. It included all histologies, so both epithelioid and non-epithelioid histologies. They recently presented their three-year update at ESMO, showing an overall survival benefit for ipinevo in the entire population. The comparison was 18 versus 14 months median overall survival. But the most pronounced difference and really what people are talking about is that this was most different in the non-epithelioid group. And that was mostly because the chemotherapy arm performs so much worse than the epithelioid group. So you really see a big difference between combination immunotherapy and chemotherapy in the non-epithelioid population. They looked at a variety of other things. Median PFS actually wasn't that different between the two and overall response rate also not that different. Still, we're looking for biomarkers to, besides histology, to kind of help us guide who would be best for this approach. PDL1 seems to be somewhat predictive, but it's not clear how much that's linked to histology. And recently there was some data presented about a gene signature, a four gene signature looking at, and it did seem to predict overall survival benefit for patients getting ipinevo. Sanjay, these were big data here. Were these data from Checkmate 743 immediately practice changing for you? Yeah, I mean, I think they were, you know, I think this is an outstanding trial. The performance of immunotherapy was completely unheralded in the uh, non-epithelioid population. I mean, this magnitude of benefit in survival that we're seeing there is huge. And you've got to remember the trial isn't powered to test between the different subgroups. So all we can really talk about is that the overall we had a benefit of immunotherapy. And uh, at least between the different subgroups, the performance, as Melina has been talking about, of immunotherapy is very robust and standard. So for me, and you know, I've said this on, on social media, Stephen, immunotherapy is really the frontline contender for mesothelioma. And this would be for both non-epithelioid and epithelioid in your own practice? Yeah, I mean, we don't have it routinely reimbursed within the National Health Service in the UK, but we patch implementation here and there. And, you know, I do definitely prefer it in the epithelioid population. And, you know, there are two things that have supported that. Number one is the three-year survival data, where we're starting to see a separation starting to occur also in the epithelioids. The PFS data is great for the three-year PFS. But really, if you look at the quality of life data, even in the epithelioids, we're having a marked improvement in quality of life that we're just not seeing with uh, chemotherapy. So when you combine the whole package, for me, it's the IO that really wins. Your patient needs to be able to cope with some of the potential toxicities and the immunosuppression that's required thereafter. So that's the discussion that we have to have. Melina, let's, let's go to you. Do you consider nivolumab and ipilimumab an appropriate frontline therapy for all patients with mesothelioma? Or do you think there's still a role for chemotherapy with or without bevacizumab there? So I use ipinevo in the non-epithelioid population routinely, and I think that data is very clear. In the epithelioid population, I have a little bit more of a discussion with the patient and with my colleagues about which approach to start with first. The reality is that most of these patients will have exposure to both ipinevo and platinum pemetrexid-based treatment. And which to start with, I think, is still an open question. I agree that the quality of life data is impressive, 
but I will say that in non-clinical trial patients, I have found the toxicity from ipinevo also to be quite impressive. And so I think that's certainly a barrier for some patients where chemotherapy having a more predictable toxicity profile may be the better agent to start with. I think that it's great to have options, you know, and there are a lot of differences in our practices. And I think that it's important to remember that nivolumab, ipilimumab, not available in all parts of the world. And so we have to sort of work with the resources that we have, but I agree that this is a very exciting option. And, and with the longer follow-up, that separation, that quality of life, the, the tolerability, I do think that nivolumab, ipilimumab, really exciting option in that space, but immunotherapy is complicated here. Uh, and I think as we get more and more experience, we find that, that uh, uh, it's not always so straightforward. You know, we've seen other data for immunotherapy in meso. I think the earliest data that I recall is, is the pembrolizumab data, the Keynote 028 that was published by Dr. Evan Alley. A lot of that data from your institution, Melina. But Sanjay, you led the phase three promise meso trial that compared pembrolizumab to chemo in the second line setting. I was very excited to see these data. I'm maybe a little less excited walking out of that auditorium. We did not see a survival benefit there. Can you explain that, reconcile that maybe with Checkmate 743? Yeah, I mean, it was really disappointing, wasn't it? You know, I think everybody was really geared up for the it'd be a slam dunk for Pembro versus chemo, but actually, you know, there wasn't that much of a benefit. The response rate was definitely higher, significantly higher, twenty-two percent for Pembro versus chemo. The trial was designed and powered actually to look for a big benefit in PFS, and it was built in. It had you know a crossover built in, so we have to interpret the OS, the lack of an OS difference between Pembro and chemo, bearing in mind that a high proportion of patients did cross over. You know, the one thing I will say is that my colleague, Dean Fennell, who then presented the confirmed data, which is effectively nivolumab versus best supportive care, um, essentially showed the same activity of IO in the relapse setting. So I think there is activity of single-agent IO anti-PD-1 in the relapse setting, but it's rather modest for a unselected group of patients in both PROMISE and confirmed studies the non-epithelioids had the poorer outcomes. So I think really this is an issue of patient selection and disease progression because, you know, once you're in a, in a setting where the disease is kicking off, patients are more symptomatic, you've got refractory uh, disease, which is relapsing, maybe the IO isn't going to be as great as when you're using it up front, where you've got a patient who's much more clinically stable, who perhaps has much less active disease than you might see in the more refractory setting. And so it's a bit like small cell in some respects. You're actually you know, getting a benefit with IO up front in the first line setting where you're not seeing that in the relapse setting. So you know, that's the way I reconcile it in my little brain anyway, Stephen. Yeah, I think there are a lot of parallels there with small cell and sort of a similar paradigm, maybe for different reasons. But you know, Melina, when you think of small cell, you know, immunotherapy in the second line setting, not really effective. Maintenance, not really effective. It's really in the front line with chemotherapy that we've seen benefit. What do you think about chemoimmunotherapy for mesothelioma? Yeah, we borrow a lot of things from small cell and non-small cell and mesothelioma. So it's not a surprise that we have borrowed the paradigm of chemoimmunotherapy. This is, was looked at first in the DREAMER trial, which was a phase two single arm study that showed really impressive results for the combination of a platinum, pemetrexid, and dervalumab across all histologies. And I think some of the potential benefits are, you know, in Checkmate 743, we saw a group of patients that received ipinevo that had a steep decline and a crossing of the curves, which we've seen in other immunotherapy trials. 
that has been corrected with the addition of chemotherapy in the beginning as well. So I'm hopeful that, you know, with the dreamer, uh, dream three R study looking at platinum pemetrexid plus or minus dervalumab, that we will see that those curves don't cross as much. And then we don't have that steep decline because of the addition of chemo. I also wonder if, you know, with this combination, we're going to have a better toxicity profile perhaps than with dual immunotherapy, or at least maybe a more predictable toxicity profile. So I'm looking forward to this data and this combination. Any thoughts on chemo immunotherapy on your end? Yeah, I, I echo those thoughts completely. I think, you know, the toxicity concerns we have with dual immunotherapy are real. The crossing over the curves we see with it from PFS is, is concerning. And, you know, chemo IO will help, I, I anticipate, with the PFS. And I sincerely hope we get a better toxic or at least more predictable toxicity profile. And if not as good as dual immunotherapy, you know, but perhaps similar. And of course, you know, in Europe, we've been running the BEAT MESO trial. Uh, patients have been randomized to standard chemotherapy with BEV or chemo with BEV and ATIZO. And that study is very nearly reaching its accrual target. So very much looking forward to that uh, trial reading out in due course. I, I welcome having more options. I mean, when we think of chemoimmunotherapy, not all patients are going to be eligible for chemotherapy due to the, the various organ functions. When we think of dual checkpoint blockade, there's a right and, and maybe a, a not ideal patient for that approach. So I think that it's going to be great to have these different options, but just as in non-small cell lung cancer, we'll then have to follow these and, and try to identify where to deliver what therapy, but also looking forward to these approaches. It's moving pretty quickly too. Speaking of other options though, Sanjay, we have another type of treatment for mesothelioma. It's not exactly a drug, uh, tumor treating fields or TTF. Mm, Can you yeah. explain what these are? Well, I'll give it a shot. So it's a device. So tumor treating fields is essentially a device which is like a singlet. You wear it on the chest and it delivers low intensity alternating electric fields. And the theory is that these electric fields change the tumor cells and preferentially kill the tumor cells over normal cells. At least there are preclinical models to suggest that that's what happens and that these electric fields synergize with chemo in model systems to cause cell death through a number of different putative mechanisms. And in meso, there has been a trial of uh, tumor treating fields. There's a, a trial called Stella, which reported on patients recruited and treated in Europe at several sites. But it's a single arm phase two trial in untreated mesothelioma in which patients receive either standard platinum pemetrexid chemotherapy in addition to the TTF, the tumor treating fields. And, you know, that showed a reasonable overall survival, 18.2 months, reasonable overall response rate, 40%. But for me, you know, the question is really what's TTF bringing to chemotherapy? I mean, undoubtedly those outcomes are good, but is that patient selection? What's contributing to that? We haven't seen any randomized data. And the singlet, the TTF device is approved, I think, in, uh, by the FDA, but it's not approved in Europe. So, you know, I'm interested to see what your guys' experience is. I'd say my experience is pretty limited. I'll go Melina in a second, but you know, I think that it's an interesting approach. The plural space is an area where it can be difficult, I think, to deliver drugs. And that's why we see a lot of investigation into interoperative treatment and I really trying to deliver a treatment there. But here, this is like you said, it's almost like a vest, like an Ironman outfit almost. I've tried it on. It's not too heavy, 
but you do need to wear it for long periods of the day and it's connected to a battery and there are certainly limitations that come along with that. This is an approach we use sometimes for glioblastoma, for CNS tumors, where it's also used. And it's, you know, another tool, but I echo your thoughts there. I'd like to see randomized data to see really the contribution of that and where that's needed, where that's beneficial. Uh, Melina, any other thoughts on TTF? Yeah, a few thoughts. You know, I would like to see it in the salvage setting as opposed to the first line setting. I think that would be a better use of it potentially. And looking at other combinations with either chemotherapy or immunotherapy. I think the other thing to be looking out for is there was a press release about TTF in non-small cell lung cancer in a randomized trial that apparently the data is positive. So for that's the first randomized data in a thoracic tumor that I know of for TTF. So I'm looking forward to seeing that data as well. You know, non-small cell lung cancer and mesothelioma is certainly different diseases, but, you know, somewhat proof of concept if that is impressive data. Well, another area where I'd like to draw parallels to non-small cell is in molecular profiling. You know, I think that all of us agree on the value of biomarker testing and NGS for non-small cell lung cancer. Any role for that in mesothelioma, Melina? That's an emerging area. I think, you know, mostly the role is in determining clinical trial eligibility for some of the targeted therapies being developed. Um, BAP1 is probably the marker that's been looked at um, most closely, both somatically and in the germline setting, but we really haven't been successful in targeting that therapeutically. There are trials ongoing right now looking at NF2 altered mesothelioma. And then of course, in the peritoneal setting, uh, molecular testing has a role because there is a very rare subset that have ALK fusion. So certainly a role, I think, that we should be doing broad molecular testing on mesothelioma, but there are not approved therapies currently that we're using this information for. Sanjay, any use of, of molecular profiling in the UK for meso? No, it's not really commissioned. And as Melina said, you know, there are, you know mesothelioma is not a disease where we get genetic uh, alterations which switch on oncogenes. You know, it's it's generally a disease with characterized by genomic losses. So, you know, the key issue is w- which of these genetic losses are dysregulating different signaling pathways that we can exploit. And there's you know great work going on globally trying to develop that further, but not you know uh, routine molecular profiling. It, it wouldn't be considered standard in pleural meso. You know, we've covered a lot of ground already, and I know that we're up against the clock. But before we go. I wonder if, if for our listeners, we could just hear a little bit more about the two of you. Melina, I know you did a lot of your, your training in Boston before joining Penn. Can you tell us and our listeners about how you decided to focus your career on thoracic cancers and mesothelioma? So I always knew I wanted to be an oncologist, so that was already a given. In medical school, I was interested in kind of developing therapies, and so I joined Steve Hody's lab right after some of the initial data in melanoma, looking at ipilimumab. And I just found that fascinating. So when I came to Penn for fellowship, I was certainly interested in immunotherapy and melanoma. And then I was put in clinic with Corey Langer. For (laughs) many of you know him, and we just had the best time in clinic. And it was during the early phases of really bringing immunotherapy into the clinic in a real way and watching both the benefits and being perplexed by some of the toxicities. And I found that fascinating. And the pace of development and progress that was being made was just really exciting. So 
I made the decision pretty early on to focus on thoracic cancers. And mesothelioma came up as um, an additional interest as I was looking for a faculty position and Evan Alley was leaving and who had done mesothelioma at Penn. So both of those things have been really interesting developments and not things I might have predicted, perhaps. I think that opportunity comes uh, in sort of unexpected ways sometimes. And I agree that, you know, Corey Langer has probably brought a lot of people into thoracic oncology that maybe didn't <laughs> have that plan going in. So it's uh, great, great that you had that exposure with them. Sanjay, same question to you. I know you did yeah. your medical training through the NHS. You got your PhD in molecular genetics, but yeah. why thoracic cancers? Well, you know, I was lucky enough to arrive at the Marsden as a, as a junior resident and never really left. And, uh, you know, I did a fellowship in germline genetics, actually working for a great character uh, called uh, Richard Halston, who's a fantastic genetic epidemiologist. Gave me my flavor of an understanding of uh, molecular uh, genetics and then, you know, did my uh, residency with some of the greats in oncology, uh, particularly the late Martin Gore, a melanoma giant who, uh, you know, was really pioneering a lot of the immunotherapy work back then. And even as a resident, you know, mentor Mary, Mary O'Brien was uh, looking at intrapleural mycobacterium as an immune, early immunotherapy in mesothelioma. So we, uh, you know, I carried on my training there and we had a great opportunity that came up in thoracic malignancies. And that together with the emerging field of oncogene addiction at that time really, you know, was a superb opportunity for me to take that forward in the thoracic malignancies and at the same time, you know, develop an interest in meso and gradually develop our trials infrastructure and portfolio. Well, the field is, is certainly stronger with both of you in it. And so I'm grateful that, that you, you found your way to thoracic cancers. We're all better off for it. And, and I'd love to just keep talking with the two of you, but we are at time. So I want to thank both of our guests for joining us today and for their continued dedication to the treatment of mesothelioma and other thoracic cancers. Melina, Thank you for taking the time out of your schedule to be with us. Thanks so much for having me. Sanjay, always a pleasure. Appreciate you joining us. Anytime, Steve. And thanks to everyone there for listening to Lung Cancer Considered, the official IASLC podcast. We hope you'll tune in regularly to give us a listen. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, www.iaslc.org, in our newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. 